Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called From GB News to Ben and Jerry's, Boycotts or Censorship? In the chair is Paddy Hannon. Okay, ladies and gents, um, we're going to get going. Um, hopefully you know what this debate is, so I'm not going to tell you again. Uh, my name is Paddy Hannon. I'm the editorial assistant at Spike, so I'm going to be chairing today. Um, we've got a fantastic panel for you. Um, we're going to be kicking off with Nick Buckley, uh, who's a charity founder, writer, and a former uh, mayoral candidate. We're then going to go to Jody uh, Ginsburg, who's uh, the chief executive of Internews Europe, followed by Fraser Myers, my colleague at Spike, deputy editor there and producer of the Spike podcast. And lastly, to Peter Whittle, who's the founder and director of the New Culture Forum. We're then going to come out to uh, the audience for questions. Uh, so this debate is about uh, boycotts and the history of boycotts and boycotts today. Obviously, in the title, the examples were GB News and Ben and Jerry's, but this go, it goes a, a lot longer. The history of boycotts goes right back to one Charles Boycott, who was a, abs- uh, the agent for an absentee landlord in Ireland. Uh, I think it was in the 19th century. We've got five to seven minute opening speeches. I think we'll just get cracking now. So, Nick, you're first up. You have five to seven minutes. Thank you very much, and welcome, everybody. Companies do not have a right to freedom of speech. It's reserved for individuals. It's reserved for me and you. But companies have the right to squash freedom of speech for their employees. It's called cancel culture. As an employee, we only sell so many hours a day to the company we work for. We don't sell ourselves. We're not trying to cancel a company by boycott. It's called customer choice. We don't buy things for many, many reasons. Too sweet, too salty, too expensive, too fragile, too heavy, too small. Remember that a customer is always right. Now, some companies link themselves to a cause these days. It's a marketing ploy. They have the gall to lecture us on social and environmental issues. They lecture us, the customer. This is the new battleground when you cannot make your product cheaper or better or more attractive. Companies can do whatever they want. That's the heart of our democratic capitalist system. As long as it's within the law. Their job is to make money. We know that. And I wish them well. Only the good survive. My job as a consumer is to get the best deal I can for the items I want and I need. Ultimately, the best deal for me will always be to safeguard the Western capitalist democratic society we have today. I expect every purchase I make to either have a positive effect on this or no effect at all, but absolutely not a negative effect. That's the deal I make with myself when shopping. That my purchase will not damage the society I live in. It's as simple as that. For companies that do not meet this criteria, I will not use them. You can say this is a boycott. I do not necessarily wish for these companies to fail, just to change if they want my custom. I want them to offer me what I want, but I want the wider general public to decide on the company's success. For I may be wrong. I don't profess to know everything. I want the public to make the decision if that company deserves customers. For this reason, I've set up a project called Go Walk, Go Broke UK. 
to give the consumer the information they need to make an informed choice. If you like what they say, then give them your money. If not, shop elsewhere. The market will decide. Finally, the outcome I want is not for these companies to espouse my views. For who am I? What do I know? But I want them to keep their mouths shut on issues that do not directly affect them. I do not want to be lectured at on any social issues or environmental issues by a company. If you want my custom, it's simple. Lower your prices, improve quality, innovate, or simply offer me better customer service. But keep out of the culture wars or lose people's custom. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. And next, we're going to have Jodie. I think boycotts, along actually with the topic of hate speech, is one of the toughest conundrums for those of us who claim to be advocates and believers in free speech. Is calling for a boycott an exercise of freedom of expression? Or is it, in its very act, a quashing of freedom of expression? And I think the fact that we find these subjects difficult is reflected in an article I was reading recently on the cultural and sporting boycott of South Africa. So in a piece for Index on Censorship, my previous employer, a number of writers, Andre Brink, Nadine Gordon, among others, were asked for their opinion on the boycott of South Africa. And the answers were very far from unanimous. There was a great division about whether a boycott of... South African writers, a boycott of going to the country was a good or a bad thing for ultimately achieving the aim that all agreed with, which was an end to apartheid. So as I was thinking about this yesterday, I would love to have been able to write a speech that gave you a definitive answer. We love definitive answers. But what I want to do rather is walk you through some thought experiments that I think us help us think about whether boycotts are inherently a good or bad thing. And by the way, I think the answer of whether they are free expression or cross-free expression is both. So a couple of ways I think that we can think about whether a boycott is a good thing or a bad thing is how far does your action, your calling for a boycott, your boycott, infringe the ability of others to freely express themselves. And I want to take the example of Exhibit B. You may remember in 2014 there was a show that was put on in a number of places, including the Barbican, that was a sort of representation of the human zoos that existed in the 19th century. And there was a, and there was a large call to boycott this performance because it was considered to be racist. Now, as a free speech advocate, I would say individuals had every right to express their disapproval of this performance, although I would suggest that perhaps people ought to see these things or read these things before they decide. But I think as a, if we believe in free speech, we believe that people have the right to express their distaste, to say, we don't think it should be put on. What I don't think is right is when that tips over into the prevention of other people to make that judgment for themselves. So in the example of Exhibit B, for example, we didn't have people just calling for a boycott, we had people picketing outside the venue and intimidating the actors and those going to see it to the point where the police advised the Barbican to pull the show, and the Barbican did. 
In that case, the call for a boycott tipped into an infringement of individuals' right not only to see the show, but also those actors within it who wanted to express themselves. So I think when we're thinking about boycotts, we really need to think about whether my free expression is moving into a situation in which it infringes your ability to express yourself freely, to see a production, to watch a TV show. The second thing I think we really need to think about and is often not in consideration when people engage in boycotts is collateral damage. And here I'd give you the example of a hip-hop show uh, called The City that several years ago Edinburgh Festival wanted to bring. It's an Israeli-backed show, but it featured both Jewish and Arab performers from the city of Jerusalem. In the end, again, the call for a boycott was successful because the individuals were so intimidated by the protesters outside the shows that the organizers decided to pull the show. So in that case, a boycott of Israel and Israeli money and Israeli-backed shows that is meant to show disapproval for Israel's treatment of Palestine actually ended up infringing the free expression not just of Jews from Jerusalem, but also Arabs from Jerusalem. So I think when we think about boycotts, we need to also think about what collateral damage might be uh, visited upon those whose expression you're curtailing. Those are thought experiments rather than a definitive answer because I think the key thing around boycotts is that, as we've already heard Nick say, they need to be personal. Uh, and to the problem most often comes when we see corporations or others making decisions or universities on our behalf. Thanks, Jodie. And next up is Fraser. Eight retweets and 17 likes. Eight retweets and 17 likes of a screenshot showing a major energy company advertising a product next to an article that was criticizing Greta Thunberg. That's all it took for Octopus Energy to threaten to pull its advertising from the Express and put it on an advertising blacklist. Even more worrying, those eight retweets and 17 likes, a lot less people that are in this room engaging in that particular social media post, after Octopus's intervention, led to the Express removing several articles from the internet. They also spurred the editor of the Express to issue a groveling apology in which he committed his paper to pursuing a green agenda and on, positively, and on commenting positively on the environmental campaigning in the future. So this was an extraordinary coup for a small group called Stop Funding Heat, which is an offshoot of... <laughs> And this is an offshoot of the much more famous um, Stop Funding Hate. And they successfully persuaded a major company to use the power of capital to censor a critical story. A story that Express readers, if I think I understand them, probably would have enjoyed. And yet, the Express is self-censoring in order to appease quite a small band of people who would never dream of picking up a copy of the Express at least without sanitizing their hands before and afterwards. The thing we have to recognize is that many of these kind of boycott 
campaigns, particularly against the press, particularly against the media, um, they're not especially powerful or popular. And even Stop Funding Hate, yes, it did have a hell of a lot of public engagement when it first started. Um, it still doesn't have anywhere near the support as, say, The Sun or The Mail or The Express has readers. And yet they're able to kind of force companies to withdraw advertising and to apologize. So, you know, a tweet that called out Pizza Hut for doing a promotion in the sun on Sunday had just over 100 likes. And Pizza Hut apologized for its promotion in the sun on Sunday, even though that tweet had about 15,000 times less engagement as the sun has readers. Company after company is folding and groveling before every threat of a boycott, usually from just a tweet or a petition, from a handful of people, and they're turning their backs on a potential mass audience of millions of people. And even stranger is every time this happens, companies release a statement about their proclaimed values. So when Grolsch pulled its advertising from GB News, we learned something very interesting about the company. So while we know that it manufactures beer by day, by night, Grosch is a brand that prides itself on its core values of inclusion and openness to all people. Of course, none of these companies really care all that much about politics or inclusion or the environment. I mean, what's really driving much of this caving in is cowardice. PR departments mistake a handful of rash tweets for genuine widespread public anger. And they can't bear to have their company associated with something that might be seen as hateful. They can't bear to have their company not measure up to what value it is we're supposed to be holding today. And they believe that the best way to guard their reputations is to pretty much cave in after the first accusation. And the dire result of this is that the power of corporations ends up being used to essentially enforce conformism to tame the wily tabloid press, to urge talk shows to tone down their criticism of certain targets. And it's institutional cowardice that gives campaigns for censorship this opening, rather than any power of the consumer or voice of the people. And if anything, these campaigns for censorship are against the people, against the mass of newspaper readers who apparently need certain words to be taken out or certain views to be censored, to stop them from exploding into a ball of rage and hatred, to stop them from becoming the transphobes and racists and climate deniers that we know they all secretly are under the surface. <laughs> As with all campaigns of censorship, the target is always, the, always seems to be the content. It's hateful, it's offensive, it's inaccurate. But underlying all of that is always a prejudice about the readers. If I, a good person, read this nasty story, I can write an angry tweet or a letter in protest but if they read it, it will fuel their bigotry that we know is seething inside them. So we don't have to like the Sun, the Mail, or the Express, or whatever they have to say, to see what is really going on with these campaigns to boycott them. Thanks, Fraser. And Peter is going to round us off. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? I hadn't really given the topic of uh, boycotts, that much thought, it, it seems to be a fact of life, in a way. Uh, is it good or is it bad? But then I sort of started to think about my own behavior, and uh, I realized that uh, 
once, I once adored Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and I no longer buy it. And I also remember a few years ago that I'd always, without a second thought, used Gillette razors. And then suddenly I thought, wait a minute, no, uh, you're attacking me in this ad. Um, you disapprove of me. So, in fact, I started using another small brand, which was enterprising enough, called Harry's, uh, just to make as, you know, hay while the sun shone, if you like. Um, so, I have done boycotts of my own. I think the point is this, really, is that uh, my colleagues here have, on the whole, um, talked about the, the market. Um, I think that the problem comes when it's the public sector or when it is things that can't be measured so easily. And uh, the New Culture Forum, when we discuss these things, without question, one of the most asked questions that uh, we have is, well, we agree with you, but what do we do about it? And my answer to that uh, is that you have more power than you think, right? So it's either in consumer terms, as I just mentioned, and it did have the most enormous effect on Gillette. They dropped about 10% market share, and they dropped that advertising campaign and rue the day. Um, so you can do that, and uh, you can stop eating ice cream or whatever. But what about sort of government bodies or sort of uh, quasi-government bodies or institutions? So a very, very good example from recent years would be uh, the National Trust. Now, of course, I should say that I'm talking about this from my point of view. Your point of view, your political views might be entirely different. So I am talking about from my point of view. So obviously, with the National Trust, I, I abhor their decolonization uh, agenda. I don't think they're doing what they should be doing. So if one were a member, one would cancel one's membership. Apparently, thousands of people have done this. The point about public institutions and commercial institutions is that money is king. And if you hit them in the pocket, it does have an effect. And I would say that in the kind of system that we have now, in, this, uh, in Britain, the uh, party political system, uh, it doesn't hear people. It uh, doesn't respond to people, even though it says it does. And so therefore, you have to say, right, well, what actually can I do? I can not approve of this. I can stop going to the British Library whilst they continually take out statues and, and uh, you know, pour scorn on their own archives when they stop doing what they're meant to do. So therefore, I would say that I'm pro-boycott in that sense. In the case of GB News, for example, I was against that boycott. I would be, because I, I support GB News. But the fact is, I think the difference there is that before the thing had even got going, there was an attempt to actually strangle it at birth. Um, the difference is, the wonderful thing about this kind of situation is that good ideas should trump bad ideas. So ultimately, whatever you think about GB News, uh, it didn't work. It's still with us. Um, and that, what that really means is that the idea was a better one than the boycotting idea. Um, finally, you know, just look around you and see and just think about your own life and your own hinterland and the things, in fact, that you enjoy that you no longer do. I've got a whole long list 
And they, it wasn't sort of something that was uh, conscious. But, for example, I no longer watch the Oscars simply because I don't want to hear the endless pontificating and politics. This is happening as well with sporting events. Same thing is happening all over. People uh, like Oscars, for example, used to get about 50 million view, uh, viewers. Last time around, it got nine. I would say that that is a boycott. It's just not organized as such. But people showing their power in that situation has had and will have an effect. It just means that maybe you might lose some things along the way. But the fact is, is that these industries will end up killing themselves anyway if they carry on um, using the inappropriate platform. But I do think that there is a kind of democracy about things such as boycotts. Um, and I think that we do it, all of us, much more than we actually think we do. But I think that we should now enter a golden age of boycotting. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so thanks to our four speakers, lots of interesting ideas there. And um, we're going to come straight out to the audience. Okay, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, interesting that you boycotted Gillette and went for Harry's because Harry's uh, then cancelled Michael Knowles on the Daily Wire uh, themselves, so they're in the same game. Uh, but anyway, just to say. So I, I think what That's needs right. considering is it, is it an ind individual act or is it a collective act? I think people have the right to do it, but is it the best thing to do? So collectively, they have the right to do it, and it can, it can force change. But you, I agree you don't have the right to stop other people, for example, entering a, in a theatre, uh, for example. You, you haven't got the right to do that. And I think, interestingly, the industries which are going woke, uh, they're only doing that, I think, to deflect away from the fact that the... the, the uh, kind of conditions of their own workers are very poor in many cases. So it sounds very good that they can do this, but I think it's a deflection and only a temporary stance until actually workers get organised and say, well, actually, you don't treat us very well. Thank you. Hello there. Boycotts seem to me to be simply a political tool which are neither intrinsically good nor bad and it all depends upon the context in which they are used and the um, facets of that context which I think we've not touched on is boycotts in the context of monopoly such as Facebook and Twitter which by any reasonable definition constitute monopolies. You can't realistically go and expect someone to go and set up their own Twitter or set up their own Facebook and have that represent a platform which realistically competes with either of those companies. And then the other facet of the context, I think, is the American context, and some, anyone in this room earlier on heard me mention the, um, the American context. Many of the companies that are having the influence or having the tools provided them to have the influence are American. And Nick said companies have no um, right to free speech. Well, in fact, in America, they very specifically do, constitutionally, have the same rights to free speech as an individual. They can do what they like, and the government cannot constrain their speech, um, which I find particularly terrifying, given that the British government is actually encouraging Facebook to take on a greater role in the moderation of speech. Um, 
trying to put it in the hands of machine learning. And as someone with commercial interests in AI and machine learning, I can tell you that's bullshit. Um, so I, I'm very concerned, not so much about the principle of boycotts, which I think is inevitable. There's nothing intrinsically good or bad about boycotts. It's the context in which they're taking place and the tools at their, that are at the disposal of the people who are using them the way they're using them today. Thank you. Um, Fraser, I think it was spot on of you to mention the Express and talk about the media in the context of this debate. Um, where I don't necessarily agree with you is you almost painted the Express as a victim of this culture. When actually I think that the modern digital tabloids are key enablers of this culture. Um, I used to work in the digital newsroom of a tabloid newspaper and a very popular genre of story was the confected outrage story. Two or three people tweet about something um, and then it gets whipped up into a, a story that, to, that makes out that the whole population are outraged about something. Then the same publications suffer because of that, that process that they're basically encouraging. So I think it's right to talk about the media as being central in this, but actually I think we need to look at the modern media almost as perpetrators of this, especially when their models are also very reliant on ad revenue, which they themselves are undermining by making confected outrage basically part of a way of life. Okay, we're going to take uh, one more before we come back to the panel, but we will come back out again, so don't worry. Thank you. Thank you very much to the panel. I don't particularly disagree or necessarily agree with everything that was said, but I am left wondering if there is really anything new under the sun. Um, if we just take our first speaker, I'm very sorry that I, I, I haven't um, caught your name, but um, companies aligning themselves with woke issues in Western European history goes back to the Enlightenment, and it goes back to Wedgwood, who produced anti-slavery medals, um, which ladies wore in their hats and pinned to their blouses. So I am left wondering, is there anything particularly new to be worried about at the moment, and um, the comments by the other questioners notwithstanding? Um, I'm going to give each of you a chance to respond to any or all of the comments that have been made. You don't have to respond to everything. We'll go in the order that we started. So, Nick, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, there's a difference between boycotting and cancel culture. So, for me, boycotting is a personal choice. Like I said before, too sweet, too salty, too expensive, too heavy. We make these choices all the time. And if you've got a company who is actively pushing their views and their virtue, well, you can make a choice on that as well. Cancel culture is something slightly different, and that's when someone's organised and you cannot get into the theatre to watch that show. When they're stood outside the supermarket and you cannot get in to buy the product you want. So for me, they're two slightly different points. Um, the American point, freedom of speech with companies, um, obviously I'm only speaking in a British um, sense. I had no idea um, about American law, um, but very interesting. I didn't know... That was the case. Um, I think that's, yeah, that's it for me. Absolutely. There's nothing particularly new in companies literally nailing their colours to the mast. What I think is new, and perhaps links together this question of boycotts and that dreadful term cancel culture, which I hate, um, is the speed and reach question, right? So never before have we been able to reach so many people in so many places at the touch of a button that is new if you keep think about it facebook isn't even 20 years old right never before have we been able to say 
I think this company ought to be shut down or we should not eat this ice cream or we should not shave ourselves, press a button, and then suddenly we can reach thousands, millions of people with our call and, and have a very rapid effect. And that's exactly what a lot of companies are responding to. It's why the 15 tweets gets people so terrified because they can see this tsunami coming down the road to them and they think, shit, we better stop this thing that we're doing before you know, we get a pile on from the Twitter sphere, which is why companies then like the Express and others without backbones back down so quickly. And I would argue, I very much agree with Fraser, that's the challenge at, is how fast many companies and organizations back down, whereas actually if they took a breath uh, and they uh, thought about it for five seconds, they might come up with a more sensible response that isn't censorship. And the last thing is, you know, I think it's a very easy trope to always blame the media for, for fueling outrage culture. We are outrage culture. I doubt there's anyone in this room, it's certainly anyone who's on Twitter or Facebook, who hasn't at some point expressed outrage at something. Outrage culture is all of us. And the, where it becomes difficult uh, is when that is used in such a way as, as it ends up shutting down somebody else's uh, legitimate freedom of expression. Uh, I, th I think the gentleman at the front of the audience um, had it right, actually. It's, it's obviously the, the content of the boycott, the aim of the boycott, that is, that is key here. I don't think there's a principled answer whether boycotts are good or bad. And it's actually quite interesting to think about, you know, some of the, the famous boycotts around South Africa, whether you agree they're successful or not. You know, the difference between that and boycotting a newspaper because you don't like, you know, Rod Little or something or a campaign against Dan Wooden's show on GB News. The, the difference in the kind of political content is extraordinary. And we seem to have this kind of politicisation of everyday life where, you know, your choice of trainers, your choice of uh, veg, is you, you have to scrutinise for what it says about you as a person, for what political values you're endorsing, whereas actual real big P politics is completely missing from uh, public debate. <laughs> Things that are really important... Uh, things that have a material effect on people's lives are hardly discussed at all. So there's something very strange going on there. And I, and I also agree about the, um, the point about the media. You know, the media um, is, a, is a dual-edged sword in many ways. The media sometimes leads the campaigns to get people cancelled. Social media as well. Social media has been this fantastic tool for the liberation of speech in many ways. And yet, on the other hand... It, you know, if you're kicked off it, your ability to participate in the public square is, is completely over to a certain extent. And social media has obviously become a platform for other people to organise, to get people sacked and to, you know, to censor their speech. So it is, of course, more complicated. My point wasn't to say, oh, poor The Express, but to point out the kind of um, the censorious bent of many of today's modern boycotts that don't, you know, they're not going to really improve our lives very much if someone pulls their advertising out of the sun, but they will contribute to a, a climate of censorship and a climate in which, you know, people feel that they cannot express themselves in the most forthright way possible. Peter? Uh, yes. Uh, in answer to the lady there about uh, is there anything new under the sun? Well, I hope there is because we've still got an hour to fill. Um, <laughs> no, no, I think the... the half an hour. The, um, 
I'm not, I'm being fruitless, but look, this is a very, very important uh, issue, but I think we can't be confused about, um, we can't confuse council culture with boycotts. I think the point was made that there are slightly different things. I think you can boycott in response to council culture, and I think that that is uh, an honourable thing to do. I mean, how would you do that? So, for example, uh, take the University of uh, Sussex at the moment, Professor Kathleen Stock, right, is facing a huge campaign. You know who I mean by Kathleen Stock, yes? Um, to, uh, well, to get her fired, basically. Um, now, okay, it's outrageous. Um, but then, well, you could say, well, what should people outside do? Well, stop applying to University of Sussex. This sounds maybe rather airy-fairy, but actually, once this sort of thing happens just like viewing figures, it has an effect. It has an effect. That is a response, a boycott response, to council culture. I think there's a broader point as well when it comes to, say, for example, uh, free speech. Um, people will always say they don't, you know, they don't want to boycott free speech or whatever. They're usually actually talking about council culture anyway. Uh, what worries me slightly is that... Uh, Younger people, um, by that I mean like 20s and 30s, what I find, you know, in my life, in my experience, anecdotally, is that there's not even any more the pretense to believe in free speech. That's something quite new. It used to always be, when you had debates like this, that people would say, uh, you know, I, I believe in free speech, and the other person would say, I believe in free speech, but, you know, etc. But you could at least engage. Whereas I think now a lot of people who actually do not believe in the actual idea of free speech, they believe in safety instead. And I think that, you know, they, they think it is expendable. That's a terrible road we're going down, but we are going down it. Um, I've just finished uh, with one uh, remark, basically, which is that um, we do all have... Uh, these choices, and uh, whether we like it or not, um, life is politicised. So we have to respond on that basis, I would say. Everything is politicised, so we have to respond on that basis. Thank you. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask Jody really, why, uh, what, your what the problem is with the concept of cancel culture, because um, while some of us might be sort of reluctant to go along with um, catchphrases like woke or cancel culture. At the same time, it's these phrases catch on for a reason because they capture something. And the thing for me about the term cancel culture is, is it does actually capture this idea of the application of the boycott technique to individuals and to try to push that individual and their ideas outside of the public square. And I think you can see that in politics, you can see that in all areas of public life, whether that's an academic um, making a joke at a conference, which is then, uh, you know, goes viral on social media, for example. That person is properly excluded from public life, including their own university and the kind of merits of their career as they've, um, uh, the thing they've established up until that point. And... I think it goes all the way down, and this is why I think it's really, really important that a lead has to be set from those people who are in the political domain and the public domain, because this is going all the way down now to children. So my son is uh, uh, 17, and he regularly tells me about, amongst 
the kind of friendship networks of teenagers, they are cancelling each other. And they're kind of provoking an outrage. For example, the example he gave me yesterday was that at a local school, two teenagers have been elected to be head boy and head girl or something like that. And immediately a campaign started against both of them, accusing one of transphobia and the other of racism. And this kind of took hold on social media amongst the, the young people. And that life becomes intolerable for those two individuals who are targeted in that kind of way. And I think those habits are learned and they're taught and they're not resisted by adult society, by institutions. And that's, so that's why I think cancel culture does capture something. It's this kind of sense of no boundaries around the public domain, which protects the individual so that they can enter into the public domain and express their opinions in a safe kind of way. Um, I think there is something about this fear of the audience, the fear of the mob. Um, and my research and everything that I speak about is about class. And so when you're working class in this country, you're very aware that there is a fear around you as a mob. And I think a lot of um, where we're going at the moment is there are groups of people that, you know, elites or people with knowledge or people that we think are, uh, have got some sort of expertise, they're afraid of their views. Um, and I think since Brexit, they've become quite terrified, actually. So I think we, you know, we also have to talk about that relationship to power, who we're afraid of, um, and then what gets censored. Hi. My background is, uh, is in the media, and I've worked in the media all of my adult life. And what's happening here, in my opinion, there's two aspects to this debate. There's the, the boycott side, but then more importantly, what's happening to the broadcast media. So when I joined the broadcast media, I was working in local radio, Back in the 90s, I was doing a news and current affairs show, and we had someone who was selling fireworks who rang up and said they wanted to cancel their advertising because we'd said on the show that I presented that fireworks should be banned or something daft like that. And at the time, what happened is the boss of the radio station laughed and said, well, keep the 500 quid, whatever it costs to advertise, and, and get lost. Now, <laughs> now that, that's... That's not happening now, and that kind of thing probably wouldn't happen in a commercial radio station nowadays. Probably what would happen is everyone would get upset, worried, confused. We're witnessing the death of the broadcast media. There are laws about this kind of thing. You can't have companies, commercial companies, dictating content because they advertise on, on your platform. It's illegal. I mean, the activities of stop funding hate are literally beyond contempt, in my opinion. It's what they're trying to do is assert corporate dominance. And that's the point, that's the principle that's being debated here, the point as to whether or not we'll be an inclusive society is kind of irrelevant. Thank you. We should think about why companies cave in. Fraser talks, for example, about the cowardice of a lot of these companies. I think it's very interesting to think, why do companies uh, that want that when, to, or when there's a boycott sort of campaign going on or people are being pressured to do something, why do they give in? Because it does seem that in many cases, most of their customers probably don't care or even might be opposed to the boycott. So that's something to think about, is what, what is it that's driving these people to give in? My question's directed at, the, at all of you. Um, in my view, in my, we've all heard the expression, go woke, go broke. So it seems to me that this um, situation as it is, it's not going to last. So my question is, um, how long do you think it will? <laughs> um, 
can I just raise pol uh, political voting? Uh, I, I'm a believer that um, when we look at media, it doesn't matter who that media is, TV media specifically, we often hear the phrases, those that are in power and those that are in opposition, but we often don't hear some of the smaller parties or individuals, independents, who have an opinion. It's very subtle. Um, do you know, for example, that the, the um, government recently, Westminster, voted through the elections bill, and they, it's only a small thing perhaps, but while we all sat one evening having tea, they voted through changes to some elections. So, for example, elections for the combined authorities' mayor was changed from first preference to first past the post. It's very subtle. It doesn't make much difference, but perhaps it does in some cases. What I'm saying is, and I think the two parties are trying to wrap it up, boycotting our opinion, boycotting our sort of means of voting, or perhaps blocking change where we could, as voters, instigate uh, or take part in a different voting system that would result in change and other voices of perhaps sanity being heard. My question was just, I wondered what the panel's opinion on forgiveness was. So Peter mentioned, for example, that Gillette apologized, gave up their ad campaign and so forth. You know, is that the point at which Peter Whistle goes back to using Gillette razors or not? Because the, the situation in my mind when I think of Coca-Cola, for example, when they were promoting critical race theory to their employees is, I don't know if they've apologized, but I don't think it matters fundamentally because I don't trust them not to do it again. So I just wondered what your opinion is on when you forgive the company or organization. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, we're going to bring it back to the panel. Um, we will have time to come out again, so don't worry. Uh, Nick, do you want to... Um, as individuals, we might not realize it, but we all crave power. We all crave dominance. And we'll, we'll use different things at different times in our lives and situations to get that. And children do the same. And children pick up what adults do. Children, children repeat what they see. We've got an epidemic in this country. It's not COVID. It's cowardice. Everybody's afraid. Everybody's a coward. Everybody is self-censoring what they say. Nobody wants to put... I'm exaggerating now, this is not everybody, but putting their head above the parapet. And that's what happened last year. That's what happened with Black Lives Matter protests. That's what happened with the COVID um, lockdowns. We're all afraid. And the reason why we're afraid is because we've had it so good for so long. Nobody knows how to fight anymore in this country. Nobody knows how to stand up and say, no, not in my name. I'm not having that. And we need... We just we need to develop a backbone and we need to we need to be able to use the word no. It's one of the most powerful words in the world. Jodie. So the reason I find cancel culture problematic as a term is because it covers everything and it's used in such a way that it basically ends up encompassing a bunch of speech that I consider we need to be promoting, right? I'm not denying the existence of really insidious and growing tendencies to shut people down for views that they don't like and put them beyond the pale so they can never say it again, and especially in schools. And I have very strong views about the things that we should do around that. But the reason I find it really problematic is because it's used to sort of essentially sort of say, don't say that, you know, you, you, that's just cancel culture, therefore your views aren't valid. And, and the particular example that I want to use is this recent example of Kate Clanchy, the writer. Now, if you followed the story carefully, what happened was she put out a tweet saying, oh, I've been accused of racism for saying these things. I'm not racist. I didn't say these things. And a couple of writers said, well, actually, they're in your books. You, you did say those. And, and I, as a, 
these writers were saying that we as people of colour find them objectionable. That's all that happened. They didn't call for her to be shut down. They didn't ask for her books to be rewritten. Cue the usual nonsense where people kind of fall over themselves backwards to apologise and then the um, publisher. But that, those people were not engaging in what is termed cancel culture. But that's how it was framed in the subsequent media coverage. So those people who were exercising their legitimate freedom of expression end up themselves being hounded for exercising their freedom of expression because it's termed cancel culture and illegitimate. So I think we need to be really careful about how we use these terms because in some cases, in fact many cases, lots of people are calling out behaviours because they see them as problematic and damaging to themselves. And I think as free speech advocates, that's what we want, right? But absolutely, I agree with you. There's a whole army of people just using their own personal views about things in order to not say, I think that's wrong, but say, I think that's wrong and that person should stop speaking. But it's not the case every single time, and I think we need to be really careful about that. I couldn't agree more about this question of backbone. I've got it written all over my piece of paper. <laughs> all power to your editor who said, take your 500 and stick it where the sun doesn't shine. That's what we need. Much more is people saying... Look, that's great for you, but that's not, that's not our values. And I think part of the problem has come because we mistake a defence of um, our basic rights, which are enshrined with law, with being nice generally. And I think sometimes people have misunderstood or not, not been confident in the protections that exist already in the law for them to be able to express themselves and so think... They've been told that they've said something that isn't nice and then they must back down. Whereas in actual fact, oftentimes what they've said is per perfectly legitimate for them to say. It might not be, other people might not like it, but it's perfectly legitimate, it's not illegal. And, and so I think we've somehow got into this situation in which we think being nice is the law all of the time, as opposed to sometimes people will say and do things that you might not agree with and they've got absolutely every right to do it. Fraser. <laughs> uh, I'm old enough to remember a time, it was only probably about three years ago, when uh, a colonel of, uh, a, a kernel of like, left-wing politics used to be, get corporations out of politics. They're, you know, that was, if you were progressive, you thought that corpor corporates had too much power over politics, get them out. Now, people seem to realise that this can be a tool, their cowardice can be a tool, or maybe they don't see it like that. Um, and that's changed things and poisoned things in quite an interesting way. And so it seems obvious that you don't want, you know, you don't want big money um, influencing um, MPs and things like that behind the scenes. But it seems to be now fine for um, Pizza Hut or someone like that to, you know, put their thumb on the scale on the debate about critical race theory. I mean, it's, it's completely, completely bizarre and completely poisonous and and I think one reason that can happen is because of the emptying out of politics generally someone you know over there brought up the two main parties and you know there is no serious debate on the big issues between the two parties they're two different parties trying to find who can best manage things slightly better whereas then we're kind of left when the actual domain of politics is so empty you're sort of left squabbling over things on the on the sidelines, in the in the culture, so to speak, rather than in the in the political arena, and unfortunately, you know, some of those debates are not 
necessarily um, that enlightening and are not going to make the world a better place, really. Peter. Yes, sir. Um, to the gentleman's point, though, I guess, I think one of the reasons, of, of course, you know, corporations shouldn't, uh, you know, have undue influence, but in a way it's sort of beside the point now because basically corporations and broadcast media and almost anyone else you care to mention all have exactly the same values and they all sing from the same hymn sheet. And in fact, you know, often the public sector gets it in the neck for this sort of thing. But in fact, the most woke places now are HR departments in corporations. In fact, they virtually do you know, uh, enact critical race theory. Um, they just call it something else. Um, I think that, uh, so that's certainly the case. Um, in relation to what the lady there at the back said about class, um, I, I hope I'm not uh, misunderstanding what you were saying, but I think there's definitely, um, definitely the case now that the views, oh dear, this is really general. I'm being very general now, but the... The, basically, we've seen the most extraordinary reemergence of outright snobbery in this country. Um, and it's, you know, it's sort of expressed in different ways. So, as my colleague said, you know, about being nice, um, you know, whatever that means. Um, but I think that we have seen an extraordinary since, uh, well, Brexit actually exposed it in a way. Uh, the difference is you might say, well, so what? The, what I would say is, is that the people who are the snobs have the power. They just have the power. And they are the motors behind so much of what we are talking about. Um, I would slightly take issue with uh, what Nick says about uh, courage. I think for many people, it is an absolutely realistic reaction to a situation in which they are really going to be wiped out. I mean... You know, we all like to think we have courage, and obviously Nick had huge courage in what he faced. But um, the fact is, you know, you're talking about your livelihood. You're talking more and more people are going to work into their. You hear this anecdotally, friends and family, and they will do this. They will go, they will take part, or they in one case I'm thinking of now actually have to give um, uh, something on uh, you know uh, um, unconscious bias training. They fundamentally disagree with the basis of this, but they would lose their job, right? And so it, these are the, un, if you like, the unspoken victims of this. We, we hear a lot about artists and all the rest of it, but I'm talking about people in the workplace. In reply to a gentleman here, sorry, I can't quite, were you saying, when did I stop using Gillette? When would I forgive them? I don't really care. I mean, look, these, these people, they're just, it's money. It's profit. I, you know, I have no loyalty. You know, I, you know I, I think they've, you know, any kind of, any corporation or, which sort of somehow or other tries to co-opt me into their views, I will absolutely have no part of. So I think that the Overton window is getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> Uh, just on that issue of forgiveness, Jodie, you wanted to add something? Yeah, well, I just wanted to say something about forgiveness as performance, actually, because one of the things I've noticed recently around this, this question of boycott and, and then the reaction that companies or organisations have is this sort of performative request that we forgive them. Um, and <laughs> I, I, find that really conf I find that really confusing, and I also find it pretty irritating, right? as if, you know, saying, sorry... 
persistently is enough. And I think a number of people have made up this point. A lot of this kind of performative, um, this performative response is to show outwardly that you are doing good things, but actually very few then actually demonstrate what they're doing internally to make change. You know, so they might say, we're supportive of these communities or we're, we're very concerned about the environment, but actually what's going on internally is going to make absolutely no difference. So I actually think um, you know, whether we forgive them or not, I think is, I agree with Peter, is irrelevant. But I do think we have to stop seeing performative requests for forgiveness as a substitute for actually taking action. Okay, we're going to, this is our last round of questions, so if you've got a point, do sit your hand up. And we've got 20 minutes, so do keep them brief. Hi, um, my question is directed towards Peter. Uh, you wanted to make a difference between, uh, you wanted to uh, differentiate between can, uh, cancel culture and boycotts, and you said that boycotts is something that everybody does and everybody Sorry, um, should you, be able to do. Up? Yeah, um, so my, my comment is that the effects of both are more or less the same. So basically, when somebody, um, for example, is disturbed by the fact that Catherine Stock um, uh, is facing those allegations or might be fired, they're not really concerned about Catherine Stock's livelihood. They don't know Catherine Stock. They're basically, uh, they're basically <laughs> concerned how it will affect the the interactions that people will have and the discussion that people will have about those topics. So when boycotting a product, like for example, Ben and Jerry's on their stance of Israel and Palestine, that's basically the, 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 the concern about that, the same effect. Somebody who boycotts basically um, tries to, to, to say that companies shouldn't be able to have a stance about this particular issue. So the effect of both are the same. So basically my question is, um, why do you um, make it, why do you differentiate boycotts and cancel culture? Yeah, hello, uh, hello, Peter. Uh, I, I know Peter from UKIP days. I should I should say um, we've had a very nice conversation, uh, very genteel. But the reality is, of course, is we're facing something visceral and and mightily un un unpleasant, an attempt to destroy. The, the, the basic culture of, of, of freedom of speech and, and democracy. Um, uh, Nick, when you, what, what you said about having to have the courage to stand against that is, is perfectly true. Um, Peter, you mentioned Kathleen Stock. Um, what people here might not know is she was meant to be here this morning in the session, uh, the first session this morning, and she didn't come because she felt frightened, she felt intimidated. Uh, that's the reality of what we're facing. And yet, there was a fellow over there uh, from Sussex University who spouting off on, on, uh, on, on, on the trans debate and, and spouting the complete uh, trans, trans line, you know, men can, can say they're women, and, and they are women. No, no, one, no one harmed a hair on his head. But if one of us had gone to Sussex University to a, to a meeting you know, promoting trans ideology and had gone up and said, look, this is, this, this, this is rubbish, men cannot, be, men cannot become women, you know, that might not have been the case. So, so, so let's, let's remember that what we're facing is something ugly and violent. And unless we stand against it and say no and take action, then even events like this might one day not be possible. Um, yeah, I just had a question about the fact that 
Opposition is inevitable, and so hence could you also extrapolate that boycotting is also inevitable, uh, an inevitable issue. It's a question of when does it actually change into being, it can change into being censorship. So for example, if a particular issue uh, or a boycott is scrutinised by a wider media or by a particular group of, some, uh, group of people, that becomes an issue of... Uh, as you were saying before, council culture. It's when that boycott becomes mainstream and you create a moral panic from that, is that when the issue occurs um, and it becomes censorship. When does a boycott actually become an issue, I think is the point. Is, it, is there a turning point when a boycott is, a, okay, is, still, is still considered okay? Because as, as we already know, everyone boycotts, everyone has their own boycotts. So, for example, I might boycott, I not, might, might not eat meat because I don't agree with that sort of industry, I want to be a vegetarian. But it's when that is scrutinised and that is in, in enforced on another person, would that be, well, not enforced on another person, when that is scrutinised or is that placed in the media, is that an issue, is that still classed a boycott or is that then again, or is that then classed as a moral panic instead? I guess. Uh, so I, I just wanted to address quickly Jodie's dislike of the term cancel culture. And I'm not saying this is what you're doing, but... If someone were to say that cancel culture either doesn't exist or it's not an appropriate term, I would say that's a form of gaslighting because I think it's quite clear that there is something historically unprecedented for as long as this country and the West has valued freedom, which is happening now, which is that certain opinions are being silenced because they simply do not coincide with the progressive mainstream. That's a brief point. The second one is on what Fraser said, which is that as you pointed out, there aren't massive grassroots outcry which is leading to advertisers pulling money from certain companies. I think what's actually happening is that the heads of these companies agree with that progressive worldview anyway. Because if you look at universities, the sort of people I went to university with, it's 90% those people who go become heads of these companies and they all have the same political worldview. So isn't the reason why these advertisers are actually caving into pressure is because they agree with it anyway. And what they see when these activists who literally spend their whole time finding things to report to these advertisers, the, aren't these advertisers seeing an opportunity to do what they want to do anyway? And if that's the case, what on earth can we do if every single powerful corporation has the same worldview and has decided that certain political opinions just simply cannot be expressed? Um, I do actually agree with Peter's point. I think it's a very good one that personal, the power of the individual is often overlooked and we actually can have a massive impact I would look at how have these activists, these progressive activists, had so much power and made big corporations basically bad onto what they say. It's because they organise themselves. I think it's quite sad that we no longer have common things that we can all agree on as a culture, but I do agree with Peter's pragmatism that it's happened. And I think what people who don't agree with that extreme progressive political worldview is they need to organise together as well, work just as hard as those progressive activists, and that's the way to change things, I believe. Often, when we're talking about boycotts, we are talking about individuals, but we're not just talking about individuals. We also could be talking about governments, for example. We've got a World Cup coming up in Qatar. Should we be there? Should the FA or the government uh, be allowing that? Should they be boycotting it? Sport is often used as a way of, uh, certainly during the Cold War, was a way of, you know, the USSR and America sort of telling each other off by not turning up and by boycotting. So this is, absolutely is about individuals, but it's also about organisations. Please do. Um, yeah, thank you. I, I do think it's difficult to overstate uh, the impact of council culture. And I would mildly challenge Jodie on her over-apprehensiveness about the misappropriation of council culture. I think we know it when we see it, and it's ubiquitous. And as the gentleman there, the ex-Ukipa, has pointed out, 
it's visceral. So what are those whole hallmarks and how does it differ from boycott? Well, it's disproportionate. It's narcissistic. It's virtue signaling. It's power and submission. And many of those who are behind these attacks, they have demands. They want somebody to apologize, to rub their nose in it. Not because they authentically apologize, but because they're submitting. They're not interested in legitimate, genuine apology. It's deeply narcissistic, and it has to be stood up to. And one of the reasons why these um, companies are caving in is they're risk averse. They're terrified of the consequences of council culture, not because they actually stand up for their own values. And we're going to wake up one morning and realize, as the gentleman said, we're not able to have these debates any longer because that's how bad it's become. We have to stand up to it, and we do need to find the courage to do that. Let's not be spineless. Let's all of us rise up against this that's been happening to Kathleen Stock and others. Um, this is directed at Peter particularly, but uh, anyone on the panel can answer the wider question. So you said you were boycotting a couple of public institutions, namely the National Trust and the British Museum, the reason being that they're not doing what they're meant to do. Now, a lot of people would argue that interrogating the past and looking at collections in a new light is exactly what they should be doing. The question really here is how much room for subjectivity is there in what we should hold public institutions to as opposed to private companies, and how should we differentiate between them in terms of talking about boycotts? Yeah, it's just um, more of an observation on the fact that the only reason why cancel culture can exist nowadays is because of the failings of the legal system. Um, and the fact that if, for instance, um, the, legal, the laws surrounding education were properly enforced, we wouldn't see CRT being allowed to be pushed through the education system. Uh, we would see structural reform of institutions like Ofsted, who have essentially overstepped um, what they are allowed to do within the parameters of mandating what should go into the syllabus. Um, why aren't these laws being properly enforced and what can we do about that to make sure that they are? Hiya, thanks. Um, there's a lot of talk about the kind of um, companies and their responsibilities or their um, desire to do something. What is not talked about is the fact that woke culture gives companies a lot of powers over their workers. They are the ones now who control what the workers can think, how they organize, who gets employed. So woke culture is not something the companies are either for or against. That is a, a tool in their um, yeah, in, the, in, the, in their power against workers, yes? So they, that, that, that has to be absolutely centered to this discussion about why companies don't, you know, uh, tell people where the you know, sun don't shine when they, when they want to come with their woke demands. They're great. They give them all the power over the workers that they need. Okay. Um, I'm interested to know from you how much of this can we lay at the door of postmodern, queer theory, gender adult academics who should know better. That's what I'd like to know. My question is, uh, what's, what are the police doing? They're folding all the time, aren't they? You talk about that theatre, which couldn't run a show because of demonstrations outside. The police have a duty and are funded to keep the Queen's peace, not to fold in front of a bunch of loud-mouthed bullies. <laughs>
they were very busy breaking up family picnics, <clears throat> pursuing country walkers with drones. In my case, stopping a pension on the train to ask where he was going. I was going home with my groceries. If they've got the resources for that, why haven't they got the resources and the guts to stand up to threaten threats and uh, thuggishness? Ah. I've got two quick points. So for me, boycotting is an individual act. So you don't like what a company does, then don't purchase what they're selling. And if it turns out you're wrong, well, that company will do well. And other people will carry on shopping from it because we may be wrong. That's what's good about our market system. My final point is I have an answer to what it means to be nice. And the answer is nice is what I tell you it means. <laughs> and I'll change what nice means any time I like. And you'll do as you're told. That's what nice means. I won't be described as a nice chair after this uh, session. <laughs> Jodie, please. Right, so I didn't say cancel culture doesn't exist. What I said is I have a problem with the blanket way the term is used for anyone criticising someone else's expression. And the idea that we know it when we see it, I think the Kate Clanchy example shows you that we don't always know it when we see it. The point about the police, I think, is spot on. Increasingly, we see police and, in fact, academia, and that's a big problem around the things like the Kathleen Stock example, is academia has a duty, universities have a duty to protect freedom of expression and academic freedom, and they are failing in enforcing that duty. So I think increasingly we're seeing these institutions misunderstanding their role, having a lack of clarity about the law that protects freedom of expression and academic freedom, and in part because somehow I think many of them think that the, uh, the rules of Facebook and Twitter are actually the law. And in fact, lots of people increasingly think that the terms of service of our social media companies are the law, and we have to get much better at explaining people the vast difference between the terms of service that a private company chooses to apply and what's the actual law, and I think we need to do that much better. And finally, I think the point that the gentleman made about we should be worried about not being able to have these kinds of debates. Absolutely, we should be worried. In 2015, after Charlie Hebdo happened, I did debates that had to be have uh, security services and police outside the door in order to be able to talk about Islamophobia uh, and the challenges around that. We do not want to get to that state, but increasingly worried that unless we're able to have and defend these kinds of conversations, that's exactly the situation we will find ourselves in. And Fraser. Uh, a few people from the floor talked about the problem of uh, woke capitalism and progressive activists, and I think it raises an interesting kind of chicken and egg question. When was it the um, was it the progressives that, or the, was it the HR and PR departments that aligned with the progressives, or what is the, the progressives that aligned with the PR and HR departments? You know, it is a kind of um, there is this new progressive quote unquote progressive politics now that is sort of divorced from. Um, the questions of people's everyday lives and is much more interested in uh, telling people what they can think and what they uh, can say. And it's quite obvious why that would be attractive um, to, you know, people who already hold power. And Peter, lastly. Yeah, uh, just to take up a few points, uh, also from the panel, um, Jody says about uh, we've got to be careful because, uh, you know, we won't be able to have 
discussions like this. Uh, the point was made from the floor. Um, I'd say in a way we're not having discussions like this. I mean, you know, I remember one, one thing that really uh, astonished me a while ago. When uh, the subject of Islam and Islamophobia came up, people were saying, oh, well, you see, we're much more at ease now than when Salman Rushdie wrote the Satanic Verses. That kind of wouldn't happen. Yeah, sure it wouldn't happen because no one would publish it. So we're at that stage, right? We're at that stage. We are entirely at that stage. So we should stop saying we have got to be careful. We are at it. And I'd say that the most crucial part of all of this is that people self-censor anyway. You can bring in as many laws as you like now, but people have been, had such fill, uh, fear instilled into them that they actually will self-censor anyway. Our great artists, you know, the creative industry, meant to be the most, you know, beacons of free speech. When, when did they say anything that was going to actually anger or provoke anyone? It's been years, and they're not going to. I would say the reason for this, and it comes back to my original point about what we can do, when the gentleman over there says, you know, we've got to rise up and stop this, is that I believe there's been a long march through all of our institutions, including the police, and indeed the police now are social engineers. They no longer care about crime much. They're about imposing things, right? And they are absolutely working, you know, if you like, for the liberal establishment. Um, I think it's been a long march, and we're seeing the results of it. So the way to do that is to instill fear into people for believing, you know, what they might want to believe. And the only way, therefore, is not through voting, uh, not because you shouldn't vote, but because no party is offering any real opposition to any of this. Certainly not Boris Johnson, whatever he might say. You've just got to take it into your own hands in a peaceful way. By that I mean by boycotting things and not actually, uh, you know, not buying things, not going places, not watching things. And eventually the penny will drop. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021.